Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegemelch. All right. Thanks for joining us for our first episode in the new year of Disaster Politics Podcast. Hope everyone had a great holiday season and is enjoying the start to the new year. We're going to do a two-part episode on disaster research. We're starting today uh, talking with some colleagues in Washington, D.C. at the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health. They were born out of a political process and really sit at this interesting intersection between academia and the federal government and work with a cross-section of different agencies and I think have some great insights into the current state of uh, research and disaster medicine and what the new frontiers are and, and really what's next in the field. In a couple of weeks, we're going to connect with some colleagues up in Canada who are doing some really interesting work convening researchers from around the world focused on this topic of urban disaster resilience and what are the various systems, political and otherwise, that contribute to that. But today, we're domestic-focused on disaster medicine, so sit back, relax, and we'll see you on the other side. So joining me now, I'm at the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health. I'm with Dr. Thomas Kirsch, who's the Professor of Military and Emergency Medicine at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences and also Director of the Center here. He's board-certified emergency physician and expert in disaster management and science, austere medicine and healthcare management, and comes here from Johns Hopkins University, where he's Professor of Medicine, Public Health, and Civil Engineering. All right. Um, and also, I'm joined by Ms. Strauss-Riggs, Condra Strauss-Riggs. Uh, she provides guidance to the center. She leads the, she's the education director here at the center and helps the development of the academic programs of the center, particularly interested in the needs of children in disasters and building resilience at the local level, and uh, has her bachelor's degree in sociology and anthropology and master's degree uh, in public health from George Washington University. Um, so thank you guys both for, uh, for joining me and engaging in this discussion. Thank you very much. So why don't we start with some of the background. So the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health, there's a lot of different academic centers out there. Some of them throw national in the name. Um, I know my center does. <laughs> so, but where does, this, uh, where does this come from? What's the, uh, the origin story? Hi, um, I could take that one. So uh, the National Center Disaster Medicine and Public Health was established um, under Homeland Security Presidential Directive 21. Uh, So unusually, we were um, established as an academic center housed at the Uniformed Services University, but having five federal partners. Um, and so our federal partners are Department of Defense, Health and Human Services, um, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Transportation, and um, the Veterans Administration. So we are an interesting hybrid of federal, academic, military, civilian. Um, we have that unique opportunity to bridge all of those spaces. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the most important thing about our center is that we work both in the academic and the political realm, which is very unique. And then the fact that we 
have five federal masters, it mandates that we are um, interoperable and collegial and collaborative across all these different agencies and academia. So, You know, it's interesting, too, because this wasn't, you know, in a traditional academic environment where maybe there's a dean or a professor who's really interested in this and starts building a center with funding around it. But yours kind of came straight from the top. Well, I guess not kind of, literally straight from the top <laughs> through an executive order. Um, so it sounds like then that this was at a time where where this need for research was really being recognized and this interoperability. Um, I don't know if you guys were in the Oval Office when that executive order decision was made, but what, <laughs> um, any thoughts on kind of why that came about? And it just seems an unusual mechanism for creating a research center, but not necessarily in a bad way. Uh, from my perspective as an outsider, because I was in academia when the center was stood up, the the impetus came mostly from a, the ongoing catastrophes that occur in our country. The most recent one to the Foundation Center was Hurricane Katrina and all the ramifications from that. And we have recognized now for decades, and again, I as an academician, that the um, available research and science that supports what we do in disasters, both in preparedness response, is extremely limited and needs to be strengthened. I was recently working on a project and... and there was a lot of interest in having a strong evidence base for the work that we were doing. This was a health uh, preparedness-related project, um, and I remember this this very loud request for you know we wanted we want to follow the what does the evidence tell us? And so we looked into the evidence and we found um, you know dozens and dozens of articles with very circular references to each other. <laughs> um, and then, so we read And we've them. all written them. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, don't get me wrong. we got to pad the resumes where we can. You know, <laughs> tenure committees don't distinguish. No, but the... Um, uh, but one of the things that we found was that there was a, a shocking lack of evidence um, in answering some of these questions. What does good public health preparedness look like? Um, how do you get to the outcomes that you're trying to get at? And so... Um, what do you think are some of the causes of that? Is it something where just this field is so new that these centers are so new and haven't existed long enough? Or um, are we sort of chasing our own tail on this instead of diving into the deeper research? Um, I guess that's kind of a loaded question, but mm -hmm. it is what it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the field is not that new. The real field of disaster science probably started back with sociologists and engineers back in the late 50s, early 60s. Mm -hmm. The public health and health side... When I was getting my MPH in 1984, I was already kind of the second generation of public health people interested in disasters, albeit the generation in front of me, there was like 10 of them. So it was a very new field then, but you know, that's now 30 plus years of research that has existed. Um, and yet there are compelling arguments that that research has little advanced in its quality or quantity. What do you think are some of the reasons for that? Because it seems like publications are coming out. Like I said, we stumbled on a lot of different publications, maybe describing some of the same things over and over again. Do you think it's the quality of the research institutions that are out there, a lack of funding that's available, or lack of um, maybe the right kind of publication venues for this work? So this is the area that's near and dear, dear to my heart. You know, Condra does more of the education stuff. We've been looking into that question, and, and I, as a researcher for the last 25 years, have experienced it. The main issue is funding, period. 
There is no national institute of disaster science. There's no hard funding stream that exists. There's no National Science Foundation which funds engineering and some sociology research centers. And so what happens, Katrina's a good example, right? After Katrina, the federal government devoted tens of millions of dollars to stand up disaster science and education centers around the country, and that funding ran out three or four years later, and most of them have disappeared. Mm -hmm. So there's been no consistent research. As a career disaster science researcher, I went for years at times with no grants because there were very little money out there in those areas. Um, And so I think that's been a huge impact. As a result, people move into the field, they do research, they do pretty quality work, they lose their grants, they have to go do something else to feed their kids, and then the next time a disaster happens, a bunch of new people come in and start doing research, and it's often, frankly, duplicative, replicative, and it doesn't doesn't push the knowledge base that much farther forward because there's no consistent path. Mm-hmm. Uh, Contra, on your mm-hmm. end, in, in terms of sort of integrating training into all of this, where mm-hmm. do you sort of come up with, I guess, drawing on the research, coming up with shortcomings in the research? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's looking at you know, broadly what's out there, what's been offered over the years. You know, there is a ton of training out there, actually, in um, disaster work from, you know, the disaster cycle to public health and medicine. Um, But again, back to this, what's the evidence base for what we're training um, and who we're educating on what, um, you know, that tends to be remain relatively thin. You know, we have some competency sets, yes, that we work off of um, to ground the quality of the training and education. Um, But, uh, you know, some of those could probably use some updating. There's some, you know, opportunity probably to relook at the way we're doing some of this. Um, But again, uh, coming back to sort of resources and long-term investment in this work, you know, we tend to reinvent the wheel with a lot of the training and education. Yeah, yeah. And I remember even our center at Columbia, some of the initial seed money came from the CDC training centers. Right. And so training was always this initial component to, to develop trainings to get people trained up. But it's sort of this chicken and the egg thing, except we know the egg came first, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you need the research in order mm-hmm. to um, to be able to, to develop uh, quality trainings. Of course, there was such a need acute need for trainings right out of the gate. Right. Um, that's one thing that struck me over the last, I guess, 15, 16 years is how frenzied the pace was post 9-11 mm-hmm. to get as much fielded yes. as possible. Right. Uh, and I think the idea was that the research would sort of catch up and you'd kind of retool things, but a lot of that funding has gone away. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so the trainings weren't getting updated, things like that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So in terms of this, who is, I know a lot of times we think of researchers, we think of the ivory towers, we think of academic institutions is that is that who who else should what is academia's role in conducting research but also with field responders and government agencies how do they kind of play into this ecosystem mm-hmm. uh, or not play into this yeah there's a uh, over the years having done field research um, there's a distinct distinction between responders and researchers and often outright um, antagonisms between the two groups. Um, And that has, I think, also limited research, particularly in the acute phase, um, because the responders don't want researchers hanging around and messing with them while they're so busy. Mm -hmm. Um, The 
researchers then miss the opportunity to collect data in that very fragile and chaotic phase. And so that's one of the difficulties. It's up to the researchers, in my mind, to engage the responders and also the local communities in their uh, construct of their research. Um, That's also a difficult thing to do on a relatively short notice, but I think people are beginning to work that out. The trouble has been Recently, there, there'll be a disaster in Texas, the, the floods, the mm-hmm. recent hurricanes. A lot of local researchers who've never done disaster research in their life stand up and start publishing papers. Mm-hmm. But they don't have the mentorship or experience or expertise from you know, more established disaster research scientists. And so, again, it tends to be reduplicative and not as sophisticated. So there has to be a way to marry that local academic and community groups to more standardized, experienced researchers so that we can really start advancing the scientists. That's a difficult thing to do, though. Yeah, yeah. And, and with this kind of applied research as well, too, I know, um, I know you mentioned before um, NSF and NIH, and you sort of have these traditional funding streams for the hard sciences, for bench research, for um, disease research, vaccine research, um, or, or even just hard discovery science through NSF. Um, but... Within disaster science, as you mentioned, it takes place in this ecosystem where you also don't have as many opportunities necessarily to collect, to conduct research in mm-hmm. um, real events, and a lot of real events go by without data being collected that could help inform the response to the next. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so in addition to this, so I know we talked a little bit about funding, we talked a little bit about expertise and just sort of connecting the dots between academia, field responders, government agencies, and community partners and sort of setting up the the systems for research. Uh, what are some of the other barriers or are there other barriers out there in terms of academic incentives, data availability, outlets? Are there any other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of the things the National Center has been doing is, is looking into this question of disaster science. And we formed some working groups in, in the di- disciplines of sociology public health and medicine to ask those very questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're working on uh, putting out a paper that will help identify these issues and maybe we can rectify them in the future. But the the, the biggest problem as an academic, and I, and I go back to my own story, is maintaining a career in this area where the funding is episodic mm-hmm. is a very difficult thing to do. And there's relatively few people who've been able to do that without deviating into well, I used to do disaster research, but now I do ambulance research because there's money for that there mm-hmm. and stuff. So that's one of the biggest problems in the academic career realm is there's no clear career path. And as people fall off, there's fewer and fewer mentors to mentor people through a career path, which is mm-hmm. makes it, again, difficult to have a career in that area. You know, that funding uh, variation has come up in a lot of different areas that we've looked at, too, in terms of local public health and community capacity, is that for agencies Mm -hmm. that are sort of beholden to an annual appropriations process, it's very difficult for them to think five, ten years ahead of time, and in terms of staffing and bringing staffing on board for that, and uh, even whispers of changes in funding every year, the president's budget comes out, uh, and then everyone kind of panics a little bit, mm-hmm. and then it goes through Congress and then kind of normalizes a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this is with every administration, right. not just right. the current. But that sort of uh, unpredictability, I think, in any mm-hmm. business environment right. Right. Uh, makes it slower to, to give investments mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. 
Um, have you seen similar things, Contra, on the training mm-hmm. side and in sort of, I know you've always been mm-hmm. at this nexus of sort of applying the research and mm-hmm. doing that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, similar to the ebbs and flows with research funding after events, that tend, we tend to see it in training and education as well. Um, or the topics that we're training on sort of follow the politics or, follow, or are very reactive to whatever's happening. Um, on the scene. Um, And so that, again, can be hard to maintain a predictable um, evidence base and have experts over the long term who can apply their expertise to the educational outcomes and the training. Um, So I think that, you know, while we do have strong um, sort of core training around disasters, I think when we're talking about, you know, the um, blips that come up after certain events um, that, yeah, then, then as we've said, those trainings don't necessarily, aren't necessarily maintained or updated over time because it was sort of to satisfy a one-time need um, is how it's viewed instead of uh, long-term investment. So, mm-hmm. and, and there's just one other thing I want to hit on um, before moving on is, is you mentioned earlier that you guys are are based across uh, five different partners, right? Mm-hmm. The, the five right. families. <laughs> exactly. Um, so if you can talk a little bit about that too, about, you know, the, um, uh, I guess from my read, it seems like that there's, you know, the disaster, we create these um, political structures or institutional structures or organizational structures to meet the mission and meet the business of whatever it is they're setting out to do, mm-hmm. the DOD, HHS, the VA, but that when a disaster strikes, it kind of blurs those lines, right? It mm-hmm. becomes much more horizontal. Can you talk a little bit about sort of structurally how you guys are embedded across those different groups, how you kind of bring them together to uh, uh, solve the world's problems? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we're working on that. Yeah. It's a work in progress. Yes. Yeah, the, um, the center ended up being mainly um, positioned in the DOD because of the Uniform Services University because it was an academic center and that was really the only venue. Um, and the engagement with the other departments has kind of come and gone over the years. We're currently working on a number of different concepts, um, one of which is kind of regional healthcare preparedness that we hope will, that involves many departments. The VA, they're the backup for the NDMS, the DOD has healthcare facilities. ASPR has the hospital preparedness program, the DOT has um, all the transportation and pre-hospital stuff, and then FEMA's got DMAT teams and other missions and stuff. So so that's an area that I think is is very intra-agency that people are quite interested in. There's mm-hmm. a lot of talk about. Um, but getting most of those groups are operational, and so getting the research interest is um, you know something that's a long-term project that we need to keep working on. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some interesting stuff. I know they've had a few publications out of uh, ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at Health and Human Services, looking at the uh, Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement data right. and being able to look along the timeline after a disaster right. and look at health-seeking behavior and diagnoses and things like that sort of retrospectively mm-hmm. at different disasters. Um, I can only imagine with the data from across these different agencies what a treasure trove that would be there for a 
uh, well-resourced researcher, <laughs> both in funding yes. and staff and institutional support, um, to, to start to look at some of these outcomes and look at that yeah. with hard diagnosis data. Mm-hmm. I personally believe that, yeah, that the, the agencies have a lot of information data that would be very valuable to analyze um, on the health and public health side. And so trying to figure out how to do that or to combine those different data sets or to do meta-analysis, I think would be very useful first step in, in some of this disaster science strengthening. Yeah, I remember I used to work for a local health department um, as an epidemiologist, and it was interesting how we had certain um, authorities for collecting data for certain reasons, but mm-hmm. not for others. Mm-hmm. So if it was for the purpose of conducting research, it had to follow a different process mm-hmm. and go right. through vital records and could take months to get. But if it was under the authority for stopping or preventing a disease outbreak, mm-hmm. we could access the data immediately. Um, so one example is that uh, the uh, death certificates, I was able to review the death certificates in near real time, but the research office upstairs had to wait to get them through the state um, mm-hmm. and to go through vital records. Mm-hmm. So they had about a six-month lag. Now, oh, for what wow. they did, too, they didn't need such a real time, but... Um, but I saw it, unless it was an unclaimed body, every death in the city within two or three days of when it happened. And, right. um, but I couldn't share that with the other mm-hmm. folks in research because that had to undergo certain, <laughs> per- yeah. yeah. Even though it was the same document, it was a public record, it just hadn't been through mm-hmm. uh, sort of the, the collation process mm-hmm. yet. But um, the, the same is true for operational data because there's a lot of operational data, how many pills do right. the DMAT teams hand up. Yeah. That is both research and operational, and so the access issues are, are much easier for that, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's other pure data related to patient records and stuff, which are very complicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I find there's usually a way where there's funding and there's a will, there's a way. Um, it's just a matter of paperwork in terms of appropriately protecting human mm-hmm. subjects. But well, I'm glad you believe that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I laid down three pretty specific conditions, two of the three, which now you need to have a will, you need to have you, you funding. You the bureaucracy thing. Yeah. Right? It interposes itself yeah. and all that. You, you just need someone of, you know, you can't let the bureaucracy. No, okay. Yeah. Um, I would say, too, just to add, I think one of our strengths is as a convener across these agencies. And so, you know, we do that in a number of different ways. And sometimes it's about the research and the evidence base. Sometimes it's about education and training. And um, we're because we're at this interesting nexus, as you said, it gives us this umbrella view of what everybody's doing that they might not actually have mm-hmm. of each other. So um, that's something that we're um, operationalizing in a bunch of different ways at this point and trying to really convene our stakeholders um, regularly so that we can assist with that. What are some ways mm-hmm. that you're, uh, you're convening folks? Yeah. Um, so symposia are one way. We're holding... Um, April 26th, we have a uh, meeting around leadership and stress mm-hmm. um, and bringing, we're collaborating with some other partners at our, and disasters, um, oh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> partners at our university um, and uh, bringing people together who have recent disaster experience and to talk about what their um, stress points have been for both themselves and their staff and sort of the leadership components of that um, and how we can perhaps make some recommendations around how to do it better. Yeah. Um, so that's one way. Um, we have the we're working with the NIH um, and NIST to put on a symposium. We did a series of webinars, and they're going to have a meeting of federal partners looking at improving um, healthcare critical infrastructure modeling 
starting from the hazard level all the way down to the operational level. Mm -hmm. So that's a very technical conference that's coming up. Mm -hmm. We're helping um, convene a group of disaster center directors. We're, mm -hmm. There's a movement now to form a society or a association of disaster center directors. Um, working with University of Colorado Natural Hazard Center on that. Just had the second meeting about that. Um, we've convened a whole bunch of webinars. Yeah. We've done, we webinars. do an annual meeting on disaster health education science um, that's been quite successful. So, so we do, and, ha and always have been, feel that we are, a, 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 because we're the nexus of all these groups that are a... Um, excellent place to draw together all these experts to kind of help move these conversations forward. And I think that's been quite successful. Mm -hmm. And I want to give a quick shout out to your annual Disaster Health Education Symposium because I've, I can't tell you how many meetings I've been at uh, where, you know, everybody acknowledges the need for local representation and sort of end user, uh, oh, we need to listen to the end users, we need to do that. And, and at your symposium, you actually take the steps to make sure that those people are in the room and <laughs> part of the conversation. Thank you. Yes, yes. Uh, and it's no small thing because that's, you know, bringing it to scale. The closer into the communities you go, the more exponentially it increases the folks you have to work with. But uh, mm -hmm. um, I think it's worth saying that that's usually yeah. where a lot of organizations stop. And um, it, it's a good event. Yeah, with this disaster crisis leadership, we're doing the same thing. Our panelists are local responders from Houston and stuff to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And on this health, regional healthcare preparedness, we're looking to convene a group of local hospitals and healthcare system people to talk about their needs. Because it's, you know, we go to meetings, it's all the feds sitting around the table pontificating to each other. And yeah. Although I recently came out of the private sector side, I've drank the Kool-Aid and... <laughs> So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> um, so, uh, and actually, that's a good segue into. So, uh, I know the three of us, as well as with two other colleagues at, at my center, Erwin Redliner and uh, Tom Chandler, we wrote a piece a couple of cycles ago in the Journal of Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness um, called uh, "Regions Respond to Disasters." Mm -hmm. So, I thought maybe, well, it, it seems kind of similar. We're talking about the research across different agencies, organizations. Um, what some of the challenges are with a regional response to disasters, although it's a regional event, we don't actually organize ourselves in a regional way for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, um, well, why don't you guys talk a little bit about your perspective on that? Well, so it's near and dear to my heart because I'm a doctor and I've mm -hmm. always done hospital preparedness stuff. And I've also responded to disasters and so I know kind of the ground truth on the ground. And so our, our hospitals as individual entities in most of the country are moderately prepared. In, in some parts of the country, they're extremely well prepared. Mm -hmm. But that's not true when you go beyond that. And whenever you get to an event, e even if it's a mass shooting in Las Vegas where there's 500 casualties, or it's a Hurricane Katrina or a Hurricane Maria or a Hurricane Harvey, it ain't just one hospital that's affected. It's the whole system. And with multiple hospitals impacted, in Hurricane Harvey, there were a couple dozen hospitals mm -hmm. evacuated you can't respond as a single hospital. And so I really firmly believe in my heart of hearts that the, for our nation to truly be prepared on a healthcare system basis, it has to be a system-wide approach. We have to assume a system-wide impact and a system-wide response. And therefore, things like MOUs, transportation agreements, joint planning, joint exercises, whatever it takes, ways to change the way we pay without, in, without outside of our healthcare plans, et cetera, those things are the critical questions facing our nation 
um, in regard to any mass casualty event coming up. But with the current you know, risk of nuclear events and pandemics, et cetera, it's even more imperative now. Mm-hmm. You know, I um, started work uh, in my career in a large urban area around the time that the Urban Area Security Initiative funding mm-hmm. came out, kind of same regional approach. It felt like, you know, you drew a circle around where the impact would be and said, now fill the circle with money. <laughs> and let's see let's see what we can that do with works. it. Yeah. yeah. And it, it took a lot of years just to work. I, I use the example of a you know, a developing country finding out that it has oil reserves, right? Mm-hmm. It's this mixed sort of it created a whole new layer of politics because you have this urban center that's maybe the seat of it, but you still has to flow through the state because it's federal money and feds have to work through states. It's difficult to go directly into urban areas. And then the region maybe a geographic reality and an impact reality, but the political structures are vertical. Mm-hmm. So in order for a municipal a municipality to be coordinating with other municipalities on something this complex, uh, it took a lot of years to actually work out the committees and the structures for doing this. And then at the same time, they're getting a lot of criticism on how come you're not spending the money faster. Right. And then somebody who's not happy mm-hmm. that they didn't get to buy their thing with it is leaking all the waste <laughs> to the yes. to the press. And um, and then there was an unfortunate incident where one meeting, they had ordered pork pies for lunch and oh. the receipt was leaked to the media. So the oh. optics of that were, um, yeah. <laughs> you know... <laughs> Suboptimal, <laughs> as we say in academia. Um, but it does, uh, you know, I, I think really strike to, you know, you start adding in healthcare to this, and you have, in addition to independent jurisdictions that are used to working directly with the state rather than, you know, they don't take orders from each other, right. you now have private sector healthcare yeah, it's, institutions. It's the private sector thing, because on yes. a day to day basis, they're all competing with one another. Mm-hmm. They've aligned themselves for the most part into large healthcare organizations with multiple facilities going from hospitals to nursing homes to surgery centers. And so it's a whole different milieu when you try to bring those people to the table. And I think that's the main reason that's lagged behind all the good regional preparedness work that's been done on the political side. Mm-hmm. There's been great advancements, but the healthcare sector has remained, I believe, outside of that and, and really needs a great deal of uh, attention now. Yeah. And I know there's a big move towards coalitions now mm-hmm. and sort of trying mm-hmm. to come up with a let's call it a, a framework right. for managing all of this. And I know in a lot of the work we do with coalitions, there's a little, well, what is the answer? Well, what should we do? And that's yeah. sort of the tougher thing here because right. we sort of know with blurred vision what it should look like, but to actually zoom in on the details as we're mm-hmm. just now figuring that out, especially when everybody owns a piece of it, but nobody actually owns all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, the ASPR mm-hmm. HPP, the Hospital Preparedness Program, exists and has done good work in building coalitions mm-hmm. um, across the country. And some coalitions are stronger than others. In Hurricane Harvey, the CETRAC coalition, the Southeast Texas Regional mm-hmm. Advisory Committee, mm-hmm. played a important operational role uh, in the response for managing healthcare system coordination. And that's, as far as I know, the first time that's happened, that, that a coalition has operationalized itself in an actual response mode. And, and that had a very important role to play in that response. And I think we could learn from that. And wouldn't it be nice if we did research on that? Oh, but there's no funding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the coalitions are potentially very strong because of their interdisciplinary nature. Um, I mean, I think that's potentially quite exciting to have all these different players at the same table. And, you know, you have public health, you have medicine, you have dialysis, potentially you have, you know, um, 
but some coalitions are very creative and broad in who they invite in. And I think mm-hmm. that's potentially exciting. Um, but uh, yes, getting getting it um, maybe standardized isn't quite the right word, but a little more clear guidance about where that's going and what the outcomes might look like. Yeah, yeah and we're doing some work with uh, children in disasters and mm-hmm. building coalitions. And it's always that fine line, too, between you want to invite everyone to the table that touches this topic, but at the same time, you have to keep them engaged and give them actionable items, things to do. And it's a moving target, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, if you're in a high threat area or a low threat area, um, and the complexity of the systems, um, you know, the the larger, you know, um, in the New York City metro area, where I think it's in the neighborhood of 75 hospitals, that's a big conference table to fit people yeah. around. <laughs> yeah. Only be invite one. Yeah, yeah. Maybe mm-hmm. just invite the doctor to the nurses, man. Oh, yeah. 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 And that's the yeah. administrators. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it turns out they want the community health centers open, right? right. Because oh, to help keep right, pressure yeah. off of the hospital. Although some of this seems to be changing with the consolidation of the healthcare industry is that they're becoming larger and larger networks, which obviously has trade-offs. But it does seem that there's... A lot of these uh, primary care and areas of healthcare are getting further and further out from the hospital are now under the same corporate umbrella as the hospital, yeah. mm-hmm. um, which may potentially reduce the number of players at the table, certainly yeah. not the number of tasks to be done. Yeah. Well, it's in the larger hospital enterprises like Columbia HCA played a role in the Houston response also. I heard a speech by them about how they coordinated transfers and activities and managed hospitals. And so... Clearly having the larger corporations involved in this process is a really important step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I mean, we've covered a bit of ground on uh, the, the current state of the research and lack thereof, <laughs> the uh, some of the barriers and challenges to doing that, kind of the regional approach to things going on. Um, so it, you guys are at the center of a lot of work being done, and I know a lot of great things on the agenda. How can people follow the work that you're doing, learn more about you? Um, where can they go? Yeah. So, yeah, we have a great website. We are active on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and all of that. Um, I think, you know, we try to really um, be present at a lot of different uh, meetings and activities that are going on in this area, both, you know, in the D.C. area, but also, you know, out um, in states where responses are going on. Um, yeah, we... Uh, Dr. Kirsch speaks at lots of meetings, and we all are kind of out there um, speaking to folks. Yeah, I mean, if you just Google National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health, or even if you just Google Disaster Medicine and Public Health, we'll pop up in the first few. We have a new annual report that's recently come out that I think Mm -hmm. fills people in on a lot of the activities that's worth reading. Um, I have a Twitter account, which I use faithfully at least once a month, so I wouldn't (laughs) recommend following me. Um, But I'm disaster prof, so... Yeah. yeah. At tw- we're at NCDMPH with Twitter. Great. Well, thank you guys for taking the time to talk through all this and for doing all uh, all the work that you're doing. And uh, we'll uh, definitely keep in touch as things go forward. And, uh, and um, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having us. And that does it for our first episode in the new year here and our first in our two-part episode on disaster research. Thanks to Tom and Condra for talking us through the great work in the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health. If you like what we're doing here, 
Give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download fine podcasts. And let's keep the conversation going. We're on Twitter. We're at DisasterPolitik. If you want to say more than you can in a tweet or you want to be a guest on the show or anything else, give us a, uh, an email at DisasterPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We've got some great stuff lined up this year. Until then, stay safe out there.